Welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm Terry Shepard. And I feel very lucky today because I get to go to the United Kingdom. I'm in Birmingham with Natalie Haynes, who is, I must tell you, a favorite of mine. She is a writer like me, a broadcaster, and according to the Washington Post, a rock star mythologist. Her first <laughs> novel, The Amber Fury, was published to great acclaim on both sides of the Atlantic, as was The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, her previous book. Her second novel, The Children of Jocasta, was published in 2017. Her retelling of the Trojan War, A Thousand Ships, was published in 2019. I have to admit, I spent most of the night reading it. It is fantastic. Buy it. It was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2020. It's been translated into multiple languages. We'll talk about that. Her most recent nonfiction book, Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myth, was published in October of 2020. She's spoken on the modern relevance of the classical world on three continents, from Cambridge to Chicago to Auckland. She writes for The Guardian. She's a regular contributor to BBC Radio 4. Six series of her show, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, have been broadcast on Radio 4. The seventh is in production now. All series are available on BBC Sounds. I highly recommend it. Before we introduce her formally, I want to tell you that her prose reads like poetry. And as we always do on Authors on the Air, let me give you a taste of A Thousand Ships. Chapter one, Calliope. Sing, muse, he says. And the edge in his voice makes it clear that this is not a request. If I were minded to accede to his wish, I might say that he sharpens his tone on my name like a warrior drawing his dagger across a whetstone, preparing for the morning's battle. But I am not in the mood to be amused today. Perhaps he hasn't thought of what it's like to be me. Certainly he hasn't. Like all poets, he thinks only of himself. But it is surprising that he hasn't considered how many other men there are like him every day, all demanding my unwavering attention and support. How much epic poetry does the world really need? Every conflict joined, every war fought, every city besieged, every town sacked, every village destroyed, every impossible journey, every shipwreck, every homecoming. These stories have all been told in countless times. Can he really believe he has something new to say? And does he think he might need me? to help him keep track of all his characters or to fill those empty moments where the meter doesn't fit the tale. I look down and see that his head is bowed and his shoulders, though broad, are sloped. His spine has begun to curve at the top. He is old, this man, older than his hard-edged voice suggests. I'm curious. It's usually the young for whom poetry is such an urgent matter. I crouched down to see his eyes, closed for a moment with the intensity of his prayer. Cannot recognize him while they are shut. He's wearing a beautiful gold brooch, tiny leaves wrought into a gleaming knot. So someone has rewarded him handsomely for his poetry in the past. He has talent, and he has prospered, no doubt with my assistance. But he still wants more, and I wish I could see his face properly in the light. I wait for him to open his eyes, but I have already made up my mind. If he wants my help, he will make an offering for it. That is what mortals do. First they ask, then they beg. Finally, they bargain. 
So I will give him his words when he gives me that brooch. Natalie, that is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's so nice hearing someone else read it. I normally have to. <laughs> And I, oh no, good. This is great. Like Jack and Ori. This is a children's program where somebody reads a book at you in my childhood. I loved your book. How did you learn to write like that? Practice. <laughs> I got it wrong a lot of times and then I got it better is the short answer. Um, I wish I had a better one, but yeah, it just takes a little time to, um, to try and work out what it, I mean this it was really difficult because it changes voice so often this book you know and so there are first person bits and uh third person bits and technically I guess the Penelope letters are often in the second person because she's talking to Odysseus and saying you did this you did that and so yeah it meant flipping a, a lot of times it was it was it drove me crazy this book absolutely crazy what drew you to mythology at first Oh, I had a really good teacher. That's uh, that's probably everyone's answer, if 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 it's true of them, I suspect. Um, but I had a fantastic Latin teacher when I was 11 years old. And then I started studying ancient Greek at 14. And that's really unusual in this country. It's really unusual anywhere. Um, I know it's very tempting to believe that schools in the UK are all like Hogwarts and we all get to, you know, wave wands and do Latin. We don't. It's not like that. It's rubbish. Um, but I was incredibly lucky and I did get to go to um, nerd Hogwarts, basically. Um, and so I got to do Latin and Greek from a very young age. I took triple classics, Latin, Greek, ancient history when I was 16, which is really young to specialize, too young, I should probably say, to specialize. And then I did my degree in classics. And um, although, you know, the joy of studying classics as an undergraduate is that you can, it's a whole society, you know, if you want to specialize in history or philosophy or linguistics or literature or archaeology, you, you could do any of those things. But myth always had my heart greek tragedy and epic have always had my heart even though i became a comedian for a while comedy never holds me in the same way that tragedy does i don't think so take us briefly through your life and how you became <laughs> you are today um in the most circuitous route possible whenever i go and speak in schools I always tell children that whatever they want to do to get to where I am, they shouldn't do what I did. <laughs> it's like, do anything, but definitely don't do that. Don't go to Cambridge and study um, classics and then simultaneously join the Cambridge Footlights, their um, comedy society, um, and become a stand-up comedian and then graduate and then basically run away and join the circus and then spend 10 years in the circus and then run away and join the library and then start, start writing books. I mean, don't do that. It's, it's a really long way around. So... But that's basically what I did. I was a, a comedian from the age of about 20, 22, I guess, 23, until I was in my mid-30s. And at the same time as the sort of later bit of that, I started writing for the newspapers. So I wrote for the London Times for five years or so, and then The Independent, then The Guardian. Um, and I wrote a column for The Times, which um, it was one of those ones where everybody writes in. They asked me if I would compare contemporary politicians to, to Roman emperors. And so I did. And then for weeks afterwards, people wrote in, dear the times, Ms. Haynes appears to believe you. But they were delighted because it meant everybody was talking about it. And at the end of that block of time, my agent had persuaded me that what I wanted to do was write a book. So I wrote The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, which let you look at the modern world through the prism of ancient history and, and society. But what I really wanted to do was write novels. And I couldn't because that was during the credit crunch um, and nobody wanted a first-time novel um, from me. And so I wrote the thing I could sell and not the thing I couldn't. Um, but then once Ancient Guide was out and had sold 
a bit, then it, it was just easier then to be able to say, okay, now I want to write a novel. Now I want to write another novel. Okay, now another novel. But then Ships was such a demolition job on me that I had to have a rest after that. So I wrote nonfiction. Fiction makes me crazy and nonfiction just doesn't. So, or hasn't so far, I should say, before it turns on me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I needed a little break to do things in a slightly more calm way before I could do another novel next. What is so problematic about fiction for you? Well, Ships is just a huge book. You know, there's just an enormous cast of women and almost all of them are undergoing something terrible. You know, there, there are fun bits. The goddesses were really good fun to write as, as you found reading. You know, they, they are just tremendous fun because they have absolutely no moral code at all. They, they're going to live forever. There's nothing at stake. So they're just like toddlers with a, you know, they're just pure id with superpowers. And so they were huge fun to write. But the mortal women, the Greeks and the Trojans, you know, the Trojan women are seeing their city destroyed. The Greek women are waiting for their husbands and brothers and fathers to come home or in some cases not come home. And, you know, these women are being enslaved and all kinds of other things. So it was just a very harrowing book to write. You know, when it was first published, somebody in interviewed me and they said, you know, why, why is the Trojan War relevant today? You're like, dude, I, I would absolutely love it if trafficked women weren't a thing anymore. <laughs> I'm very happy to not get the sales if women can have a better lot around the world. But believe me when I tell you, it's a luxury that you think that this isn't applicable because it, it demonstrably is. Like Calliope said, every story has been written and uh, our yeah, job is countless one, times. one better. Uh, tell us about how A Thousand Ships came to be. Um, well, it was quite a, um, it's an unusual book for me because I sold it before I'd written it and I don't normally do that. Normally I write the book first and then sell it. But when I'd written Jocasta, The Children of Jocasta, um, and my agent was trying to find it a home, Pan Macmillan, who published it in the UK, were very keen to do a two book deal. And they said, have you got another idea for a novel? And I said, yeah, what I'd really like to do is, and they said, no, no, don't worry, go away, write a page and then just send us that and then we'll know. And I said, okay. And I'd had this idea walking home from the park uh, to where I live in London. Um, I thought, this is great. I'm gonna tell the whole story of the Trojan War. It's not, I like to begin my ideas quite ambitious. <laughs> I'm gonna tell, tell the whole story of the Trojan War. And I'm gonna start with the fall of the city because that's the bit that everybody knows, the Trojan horse. So, so I'll start there. And then I'll tell the consequences timeline forwards and the causation timeline backwards. And I'll change point of view each chapter. That'll be fine. Yeah, that'll be fine. So I wrote that and sent it. In. And to be fair to them, they went, yes, great. And not, what? What are you doing? And they just left me to it for, you know, the however many months it took me, 10 or 11 months to, to write it. Because I knew if I could just, and it changed a little from that first day when I had the idea for it, insofar as the, the kind of spine of the book now is the story of the Trojan women waiting on the shore outside their ruined city. And that wasn't in my original plan. I thought they would just have individual chapters. I didn't realize there would be, it's typical of women in my books that they become a gang when they get a chance. Um, they never ever manage to strike out on their own in an individualistic Homeric way. They always club together. Um, and so, yeah, that, that changed a little, but basically the idea that I had for the book was, was pretty much the book that I ended up writing. It just ended up more complicated than I could have even begun to imagine. Um, and in some ways less, you know, I, was, I thought I would do the Penelope letter was, was supposed to just happen one time. And then I was intending to do the Odyssey from the perspectives of all its women. Um, I, I, I was kind of thinking, oh, it'd be so nice because then the sirens can sing and that'll be really lovely. And then, you know, Circe could do her bit and then, 
Uh, I don't know what I thought I was going to do when I got to Scylla and Charybdis. It's like barking and a glug sound. <laughs> would that have been a good chapter? I say no, it would not. Um, but in the end, I wrote Penelope's first chapter and I just loved writing her. There's absolutely no way. I got to about 100 words into that chapter and thought there's no way I'm giving up this voice. She stays. <laughs> the kid stays in the movie. So it was a very easy decision to make. But that often happens to me. I have these, you know, very complicated structural plans and then the voices of the characters just basically come in and go oh shush <laughs> oh, okay natalie haynes is our special guest nataliehaines.com h-a-y-n-e-s.com is her website you're writing a story that many people know by heart and have heard told a thousand different ways how do you make it interesting to the audience who is aware of the, how the plot yeah i mean it is really difficult it, it, it hit me the the first time when I was writing Children of Jocasta and I thought, how am I going to tell everyone a story everyone knows? Everyone knows the story of Oedipus and Jocasta. And then the more time went on, the more it became clear that A, everyone does not in fact know the story of Oedipus and Jocasta. Classics isn't taught very much in schools anymore and lots of people don't know it. Um, and B, I didn't know the story I was going to tell because there are so many contradictory versions. So there are versions, although I didn't use it in this book, for example, of the story of Helen of Troy, as we think of her, where she never goes to Troy at all. She goes to Egypt and spends 10 years there. She is Helen of Sparta, as she begins, and then Helen of Egypt. She is never Helen of Troy. But most people don't know that part of her story. Um, and so there were other bits of the story which I was confident people just didn't know. Do you, you know, generally, do people know the name of the wife of the first Greek to die on the shores of Troy? Her name's Laodomia, and there's an Ovid poem about her. But I'm not sure even I could have answered that question five years ago without a prompt. Um, you know, the story of Penthesilea, the great Amazon warrior woman who fights at Troy and for Troy, um, that's told in Quintus Manaeus's The Fall of Troy, but not that many people are reading Quintus Manaeus on the average day, I don't think. And so actually, I think people know some things about they know the horse for absolute sure they know that achilles has an achilles heel but the interesting thing is that by far the best known text i suppose of the trojan war is the iliad and that doesn't include either of those two events because it only covers two years uh, two months rather in the story of a 10-year war so all the causation of the war the story of the golden apple for the most beautiful etc that's not in there that was in a lost poem called the Kiprica. Um, and all the you know aftermath where Achilles is killed, the, the heel comes into play, etc. That's not in there either. And so I thought, you know, not only do people not know this story as much as I worry that they do, but I'm going to do something which no one's done, which is to take all these women's voices from all these different sources. I took them from plays by Aeschylus or Euripides. I took them from, you know, the margins of, I mean, literally the margins, the scholiast's comments on bits of the Iliad, you know, is where, you know, you can easily find a, a reference to Penthesilea. I took them from vase paintings, from sculptures, and I thought I'm gonna put all, but sometimes it was incredibly difficult to find them. There's a, a very brief scene with Themis, the goddess of divine order, who's trying to help Zeus out at one point. And her outfit is taken from a vase painting, but there are only a tiny number of, of vases with her shown on it. So I got to, I got to nick her clothes from a vase, but it was quite hard to track them down. And I thought, I'm, I'm pretty confident everyone else isn't doing this with their time. So this is gonna seem like a new story to them because women have been marginalized for so long. I grew up uh, with parents that read Homer to me when I was very young. Those and, are good parents. And and I was very lucky when I was about the same age that you were to be introduced to Edith Hamilton 
And as a teenager, I love the fact that the gods were amoral and could do anything. It's what I wanted to be when I grew up. Yes, absolutely. Who doesn't? Yeah. Who is your audience? Hmm. I always worry that it's classicists because um, I love classicists, but I feel like they already know everything I'm telling them. Um, although often it seems like they they too haven't tracked down these obscure texts because they're studying whatever bit is their speciality. But actually, um, it's kind of skewed. My publishers would tell you that um, women writers, and they would be right statistically, women writers mostly are read by women. Um, and that's probably true for me too. I get read by a lot of young women, um, teenagers into sort of up, up to about sort of 30-ish. But they also bring their moms and their, sometimes their grandmothers to the radio shows or to the live shows. So um, it's something I only noticed with ships um, is that I'd become a kind of a generational bonding thing. And it's, it's so incredibly moving to see it, to see mothers and daughters at shows or sometimes dads and daughters at their shows where clearly the daughter has dragged them along and they've you know found themselves enjoying it in spite of it. I, I guess, or in spite of themselves, perhaps. And so it, it is just a really kind of touching thing. But yeah, I guess it's a combination of the radio audience, which again is supposed to skew old. Radio 4's audience's average age is, I don't know, 60 something. Um, and yet my audience skews very low. And since they made the show available as a podcast, it, it gets a much younger audience there. So it, it's kind of an unexpected mishmash. I'm always delighted by pretty much any reader, to be honest with you. So, you know, I know there's a great desire to say, oh, you know, we have this market, but we want that market. Um, any reader is a good reader as far as I'm concerned. I'll take them. I'm not proud. Natalie Haynes is our special guest and authors on the air. NatalieHaynes.com is the website. We're talking about her terrific book, A Thousand Ships. Who's in the audience when there are, when you did have audiences at Radio 4 for your programs? <laughs> who, who, who out there? Um, it's it's really hard to say. When we do the live recording, the the radio theatre at uh, Broadcasting House, the BBC's radio theatre, seats about 400 people, I think. Um, and th they're free because uh, people pay for the BBC by a thing called the licence fee. And so we the tickets are available to them. And it's always, it's always full. It's always oversubscribed. But it, it should be. They're free. Um, and we always get this incredible diversity of, you know, from from children. Um, I think sometimes I've had to step in because there's an age restriction of no under 12s. And occasionally I have like a super fan who's 11 and I have to intervene at high levels to say, I promise I won't swear if, if you allow in this 11 year old whose heart you will break in two if you don't let her come. Um, and, you know, right the way through to people who are, you know, my parents usually come there in their 70s. They're not the only people there who are that sort of age. So we get a really great age range. But in terms of the uh, shows when they're broadcast. The BBC has a huge uh, monopoly on radio in the UK uh, and on speech radio in particular. And we get uh, 1.6, about 1.6 million people per episode listening in. Um, since it became a podcast last year, just over a year ago, um, it's been downloaded a million times. So that's, I mean, they're really, I don't sell books in these numbers, I've got to tell you. <laughs> so yeah, I think my my readers are a subset for the most part, I think, of my listeners i think probably i have more more listeners than you know i'll i'll probably ever have readers but it's a lovely thought of trying to kind of match the two together that program is natalie haynes stands up for the classics and if even if you're on this side of the pond it is available from bbc4 the entire bbc4 
catalog is available on the web at bbc.co.uk. And I've been in that studio, Natalie, and it is an ideal place. It is. An audience because it's so intimate. Yeah, it's just killing me. I'm recording. I literally was recording the next two shows today. And I've had to do it in this exact room here um, because, and we had to do the last series like this too. And I, I honestly know it is not the worst thing that's happening to anybody at the moment. I really do. But, oh, I just want to moan. I just want to my audience. But I do, I can't help it. I was a comedian for whatever, 10, 12 years. I, I thrive off that um, thing where you create something that just exists while it's happening, you know, that even the recording will never be quite the same. And I really believe that there's a sort of magic to stand up that that you create it between the the end of my microphone here and the shoes of the person in the front row there there's just this little tiny liminal space between us where we make something really special and it's different doing it but you know I I'll I'll bring it do you know what I mean I've been striding up and down this this room to record today last year we had to do it with me sitting on the floor for soundproofing reasons um, because it was it was just after lockdown began and we just didn't have a a microphone that was good enough. It was recorded on my phone, the last series. I, I, sorry to spoil the magic. Um, but this time we've had a bit more time to prepare. So I'd got a microphone, which means that I can, I can strike. It's much easier for me if I can move. I'm a, I'm a born walking performer, a stand-up comic by, uh, by standing as well as by comic, I suppose. So much of stand-up involves a dimension of improvisation. Do you find yeah. yourself doing that when you're speaking about your books as well? Always, yeah, always. It's actually the kind of fun bit, really, uh, for me anyway, because I find the idea that I would talk, you know, a hundred times, I've, I've probably, yes, I've probably done over a hundred events for ships, I would guess. And the idea that I, I would want to say the same thing every time, it's like, why would anyone do that? Even if you were a robot, you would be bored by now. And so, yeah, I, do, I try really hard to find ways of keeping, I know there are people who come to every event I do, and I don't want them to just have died of boredom. I need them to buy the next book, right? So I've got to keep, I've got to keep making the effort to keep them alive. So I'm trying to entertain myself and I'm trying to entertain whoever I'm talking to, I guess. And, and it's kind of a combination. But with the radio shows, they are all pretty improvised. I make notes. So I distill the, the show down. I write a long form version of it and think, well, this is the, and I write it by hand. It's the only thing I still write by hand is, is notes for live shows and the radio show, which I consider a live show. And so I write a long form and then I distill it into notes that will kind of jog my memory when I'm in front of an audience or today pretending I'm in front of an audience. And then I'll just spin around off it and, and try and regain it. Why did you leave stand up? Um, I bought a flat. I don't want to spend the rest of my life not in it. <laughs> I think that's the short answer. Although I now spend more time touring, or not the last 12 months, but in general with ships, I think I'd done 75 shows by the time lockdown kicked in. Um, with Jocasta, it was 60 something. So yeah, I do still do, you know, probably in terms of just, just days performing and days traveling to those performances, I probably still spend a quarter of the year across a year on tour so it hasn't gone quite as well as I was planning giving up performing I'm just I thought it was you know because I was tired and I wanted to write books and I wanted to be at home and what's happened is now I write books and tour I'm just I'm greedy for applause I don't know what you want me to say well I think we all love affirmation there's nothing at all wrong oh, it's so validating <laughs> just tell me I'm great thank you very much <laughs> I shouldn't be this needy I'm too old 
<laughs> I'm loving this conversation with Natalie Haynes, our special guest and authors on the air. Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics is her radio show. The book we're talking about is a thousand ships and the way you write it, you know, there is sort of a Harry Potter dimension to these big sprawling stories. Is that part of what you think connects you with this younger audience? I don't know. I've never thought about it really, but I mean, Epic is the first type of storytelling there is, right? It's gods and monsters basically. And that, although now I think some people would be quite snooty about the idea of gods and monsters being high art. Um, I personally am quite snooty about the idea of there being high art, but there you go. Um, I think it's, you know, that, that has obviously moved into a kind of fantasy realm and, um, and that makes perfect sense, I guess. But the, this, I think epic is is slightly different from fantasy because it has a sort of um, a slightly different moral core. It has a sort of moral knottiness to it, which I think fantasy maybe doesn't have in quite the same way. Um, I think it's no accident that Aeschylus can refer to his tragedies as slices from the banquet of Homer. So this notion of things being um, not just tragic, which they assuredly are often in epic, but they'll have these very difficult moral decisions. Um, at their center. I mean, it, it kind of makes perfect sense that we would still um, be drawn to those narratives in, in the same kind of way, I think. But of course you're right, the Harry Potter universe is all about you know, making choices of, of self-sacrifice in order to try and, and achieve a, a greater good um, with, in some cases, more and less success. And so I don't think it's particularly, but I think she studied classics, didn't she? She did Latin and French, maybe JK Rowling, at, uh, university. So she is basically a, a, an extra classicist. She's on our team, whether she likes it or not. <laughs> Tell us about your process. You said you handwrite most of your speeches. How do you write your books? Oh, I typewrite them because I think faster than I can write. Right. Uh, my handwriting is appalling. As anybody who has a signed copy of my books will know, I'm, I, all I can do is just generally apologize uh, for the state of them. And particularly for the ones I signed for Pandora's Jar last year, uh, because I'd spent so little time writing that by the time I had to, it's basically like a caveman <laughs> yeah. hoping for the best. Like, is yeah. that going to do it? No, no, it isn't. Um, and so, yeah, no, these ones I build um, in a sort of, I sometimes use, or at least I used to use index cards and, and write out the, the Amber Fury is written as a play. So each, um, each scene was written up, you know, act one, scene one, act one, scene two, it was written like that. And I had all the cards down on, on my floor at one point. And I had that moment where you look at yourself suddenly from the outside and I looked down and I thought, God, the, if I put string between these cards, this is the house of the serial killer in every TV drama there's ever been. I have to stop doing this. And so I've gradually managed to pull back from the kind of extremely prescriptive way of structuring books. Um, and so now a notebook will generally do it for me, but I might yet, you know, suddenly unfold it all and, and have to put it all on card. I haven't had to so far with the, the novel that I'm writing at the moment, but there were times in the first, in the first chunk where I thought, oh no, I'm gonna have to, I don't know. If, and so it's kind of a question of trying to get the, the tone to, to sort of be in waves rather than jolting because the, the new book like the, the like ships will have moments where it's funny and moments where it's devastating. I hope moments where your heart breaks and moments where you're laughing, um, ideally not the same ones. Um, maybe sometimes the same ones just because it's fun. Um, but it does mean you need to create this kind of wave, this oscillation where the tone is allowed to just adapt very gradually. Um, 
And I, I usually know at the moment, for example, I know the story arc of two characters. So they're going to kind of spin around each other like a double helix. And then everything else is just going to sort of slot into that. But I know everyone else doesn't think of books in terms of their shape. And I always do. So for me, A Thousand Ships is a spine, the, the Trojan women. And then it has this causation timeline which spirals backwards from one end and the consequences timeline which spirals forwards from the other end. But I, I freely appreciate other people don't think of words in those terms. I don't know why I do, I just do. Most writers hate having their publishers pull their manuscript from them because they never think it's ready. How do you know when you're ready to go? When it's oh, ready? I always, I, I finish before I think I have every single time. I get to the, and that happened with ships really noticeably where I was absolutely sure I'd got a week to go. Um, and I sat down to do Andromache and I was like, right, here we go. It's going to be this and it's going to be that and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And her story goes on beyond the confines of the book, of course. And it's like, OK, so I know this bit of her story from here and then there's that bit. And I was like, wait, is that in Virgil's Aeneid? Yeah, I think it is. La, la, la. And there I sat thinking, da, da, da. And I thought, OK, well, how does this bit begin? And then it's a really um, it's a really uh, bad piece of writing in in the way of how, how people are taught to write, because it's the only bit of the book, I think. Um, maybe Calliope's sections a bit too, where I properly just go, you know that show don't tell thing? No, yeah. I just come right out and tell you. I come right out and tell you where Andromache is and what she's feeling and why she's feeling it and how she's feeling it. And I don't know how many, it's about a thousand words. It's really not very long. And I got to the end of that and I was like, okay, so that's the, oh, <laughs> that's the end of the book. Everyone, everyone, I finished the book and that was it. And it just, and I just sat here and kind of stared at it. And then I texted a friend and said, is it possible I've finished when I don't think I finished? Do you think I've just stopped? And he was like, no, if you feel like you finished, you finished. I'm like, okay. And in, in it's edited, it wasn't edited very heavily. I edit really hard as I go along. Um, I edit every day. I read yesterday's bit to fix it. And then when I get to the end of a section, I go back and, and do it again. Um, and so it's, it's had two or three rewrites by the time my publishers ever see it. Um, as I've gone along, but no one ever said, oh, you know, I wish this book went on a bit longer here. <laughs> Natalie Haynes is our special guest. NatalieHaynes.com is the website. She has a ton of books. The Ancient Guide to Modern Life is a great one, I think, to open your eyes to the value of the classics in the current world. We've been talking about uh, her terrific uh, bit of fiction, A Thousand Ships. How do you define success, Natalie, and where are you on that continuum? I guess I'm not sure I think very much in those terms. I'm a lot more successful than I used to be. Um, I think probably I don't, I doubt I'll ever be fully satisfied with where I've got to. I don't think it's in my nature. Um, do you know the um, Hugh Jackman movie, The Greatest Showman? Yes, yep. Right, so um, here's what happens when I watch that film. When everyone is singing a beautiful, inclusive song about basically being a big family as part of the Barnum Circus, I'm like, oh, that's so lovely. I love how much everyone is a lovely, inclusive family. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from, you're part of the family. A bit of my brain is watching Jenny Lynn singing Never Enough and going, be her, the entire time. That's <laughs> happening to me the entire time. I'm like, that's right, it never is enough. And it's like, no, don't be that person. Where does she end up, spoiler, in the film? Not with all the lovely people in the maid family. No, on her own, singing sadly. Don't be hurt. But a bit of me is always going to be that. It just is. So it doesn't, I'm vastly more successful than I ever used to be. And it is not enough. What's still on your bucket list? 
oh, I've got, um, well, I owe two more books. <laughs> quite, quite before before I'm allowed to do anything fun, I have to sit and do some homework. Um, I need to travel again, for sure. I've missed it terribly, like everyone, I'm sure, in the last year. Um, so, yeah, that's, I, I mean, it would be really nice to um, have books that are read, you know, by huge numbers of people and now ships was read by an enormous number of people and pandora's jar in the uk has been read by a, a huge number of people too more than i could ever have imagined but it, it it's not enough it's so let's aim for more of that and more of the i mean i think next book my italian publishers tell me i can go to italy and and they'll take me to Paestum and places that I love. So if I get to go and see Greek remains in Magna Graecia, southern Italy, uh, while promoting my own books, that would be pretty nice, I think. Your books have been translated into multiple languages. What is it like to see something in a language you don't understand? It's incredible. And especially when it's an alphabet that I don't read. Because Greek, of course, I, I, even though I don't speak modern Greek, I can still read what it says. Um, but yeah, sometimes you get translated into an alphabet that you can't recognize. I've been translated into Taiwanese or Korean. Um, and you, you just have, it's, it, there is something really, it feels so alien. And yet you can just about kind of work out where your title is or what your name is according to it. And yeah, it feels incredible because it's somebody, it's somebody else's book by then. You know, you're, you've, you've co-created a book with a translator that you've often never met. You know, sometimes I get email questions from my translators, um, but I don't think we've ever met in real life. And so somehow you still managed to jointly make this, this thing. And it feels fully separate to me. I don't feel at all, you know, kind of responsible. And yet somehow I managed to feel proud of myself just the same. point <laughs> of trust, right? I mean, you're, you're turning over your art to someone else to interpret it. Yeah, it's kind of nice though because you've done. I'm, I wrote my book. Do you know what I mean? It's like um, it was adapted for the stage um, in Cyprus uh, in 2019, um, and they they did it as an all day reading. So it was translated into Greek by these incredible this incredible women's theatre group in Cyprus called Sezon Gynaikis. Um and they ended up bringing it to London to the British Museum just just before lockdown happened a year ago. Um, and for, for that to, to happen, they, I mean, they spent 12 hours or 11 hours or something performing it in Cyprus. Um, but even then, they still had to cut some bits of it because it, yeah, it's, it's slightly too long to do in that time. And they were so worried, these women. They were like, we've had to cut this. And it's like, it's yours now. You know, I did. Here's my version. It's here. I've finished mine. That's it. Now you do what you need to with it. You know, I, I'm not mad if you do the whole thing in mine. I, it's not what I would do, but don't let me stop you. But yeah, I kind of love that sense of being able to go, well, I, I had my say. I really understand it when authors say that about a, a filmed adaptation or something. I find it a very easy thing to just hand it over. It's like this, this belongs to you now. You know, you're making your thing and, and being loyal to a book isn't necessarily the same thing as being accurate to the book. You know, you, you might want to capture the spirit of it without capturing the, the structure or the words or, you know. Natalie Haynes is our guest, nataliehaynes.com, H-A-Y-N-E-S.com is the website. You said you've taken a circuitous route to get to where you are today. If some young woman wants to grow up to be you, what should they do? Don't do it. Don't all about Eve me. This is, I'm not dead yet. I, can't, I, haven't got, I haven't paid off the mortgage. You can't do it. It can't be me. Um, yeah, no, people say it quite often. Yeah, my daughter usually. My daughter wants to be you. Yeah, well, tell her not to. I'm doing it. But yeah, I mean, you have to do a lot. You have to be a massive nerd, basically. I spent really an enormous amount of time reading a lot of books. Um, 
And, you know, when I go on holiday, I go to places where there are ruins and I look at them or to a museum. I can't help it. Um, and I, I'm really happy here. I think if it feels like work to you, you know, doing that bit, the research stuff, it's going to be a trial. You know, I, I'm very keen to remind writers and performers that what we do is work because so many people are very keen for you to do it for nothing. And of course, that isn't going to pay the bills because I don't have a, a bank manager who's prepared to accept nothing on the mortgage each month. Um, but you have to find, you have to love the, the study, the research. If you're going to, if genuinely, if you want to do what I do, um, this comes from a place of properly sitting here going, oh my God, I just found this really cool book about the Pergamon altar, which is only available in German, but hey, the pictures look great. And I'm pretty sure if I pay an extra 10 euros, I can get, that's how I live. Like a massive, massive nerd. And then occasionally I go for a run or kickboxing just to break things up. So yes, but, but I mean, be super physically healthy because otherwise you can't possibly spend all your days sitting hunched over books if you don't also kickbox or run or something. That's my you'll that, get a sore back very wise i mean we, yeah. we and, uh, it's very easy for those of us who write to just sit in the chair all day but to remember you just can't life is balance and um happiness is of your own definition that sounds like what you're saying is that yeah you are a nerd so if you are that young girl who wants to grow up to be like you then she should figure out what her passion is what her purpose yeah. is face it with the same intensity absolutely or maybe slightly less intensity because i <laughs> Don't, I don't really have very many friends right now or hobbies. You know what I mean? Lockdown's been a very long time. <laughs> so, yeah, don't do this. Um, but it's just hard, isn't it? It's, it's like, well, if, if you're going to have to be locked in your home for however many months, I'm not sure where we are now. It just feels, I, it does feel now a little bit like being one of those mad astronauts that's been lost on the dark side of the moon for a really long time. Then it's lucky that I've got such a passionate interest in books. It would be a difficult time, I think, to, to not have books to sustain you. The last question I always ask every guest, Natalie, is this. If you could go back and talk to your 16-year-old self, what advice would you give that young woman? Stop worrying. Stop worrying. It's all going to be fine. I was so anxious. I'm still quite anxious as a person now. But I was so anxious when I was 16 and 15 and 14 and 19 and 23. And I was so anxious. I was so worried that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't going to be good enough, that all the things that I was trying to do were too difficult and that somehow, you know, it would all elude me and that everything would fall apart. And at the same time as believing that absolutely and utterly, I also had this total conviction that everything was going to be all right. And I ran those two things. I still do run those two things. I feel them less strongly maybe, but I still do run those two things in my brain in parallel. They're like the two halves of train tracks the entire time. And if I could do anything for 16 year old me, it would be to go back and say, sweetheart, it's gonna be fine. You're just gonna be fine. It's all going to be all right. And I would be right. Natalie Haynes is the award-winning author of The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, The Children of Jocasta, A Thousand Ships, and Pandora's Jar, The Women in Greek Myth. She is also the host of Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. Series number seven is in production now, BBC Radio 4, bbc.co.uk. Natalie, what a pleasure it has been to visit with you. I'm so glad I got a chance to meet you. It's been lovely. Thank you for having me. It's been really nice. Take care of yourself. See if you can get that jab soon and, and keep that mask on. I will see what I can do. I'm not going to push an old lady out of the way to get it sooner, but I'm definitely going to think about it just so she knows that she's got to make the effort. Yeah, no, I'll be fine. Thank you. Authors on the Air can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud. And we invite you to explore the many other podcasts that features the craft aggregated at the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. 
For Pam Stack, I'm Terry Shepard, and Natalie and I will see you in the next chapter.